Hi, and welcome to the Neil Plus One podcast. My name is Neil Curran, and this is the first episode of season one. And each week for the next seven weeks, I'm going to be bringing you interviews with uh, improvisers, wonderful improvisers that I meet on my travels. Uh, for this first episode, I'm pleased to bring you a chat I had with one of London's most prolific improvisers, uh, Jules Munns. It was recorded during the Slapdash Improv Festival uh, a little short while ago, so please enjoy. I, I just felt like I wasn't even trying at that stage. <laughs> uh, but that's names. That's names. I'm here with Jules Munns uh, in London. We're here at the Slapdash Festival, and exactly. we're here, here in Jules's real house, which is the nursery theatre. So well, this is the nursery training centre. The nursery training centre. Exactly, because we don't have a theatre in this building, we just have rehearsal rooms in the office. So, Jules, you uh, tell us about yourself. So, tell us a little bit about what you do here in London. Uh, okay, so I... Uh, wow, that's such a broad question, isn't it? I, I'm an improviser. I teach um, for the nursery, uh, which I founded and co-run with Judith Amzanger. Um, I also teach and perform with the Maydays and with Impromptu Shakespeare. Uh, I also do a couple of two-person shows, one of which is called 10,000 Million Love Stories with Heather Urquhart, and one of which is called Sitting in a Tin Can with Rhiannon Vivian. Uh, so that's, that's my regular stuff. I also put quite a lot of time and energy into bringing teachers across from uh, various places, but in practical terms, it's mostly America and Canada because that's where the greatest amount of improv research has been has been done um, in the form of improv, which I'm talking about. Because uh, anything can be improvised, and there's a hugely rich improvised theatre scene across Europe. But this particular thing that comes out of Chicago, which is what I find incredibly exciting, is relatively new over here. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to disrespect the wonderful stuff happening in in Poland and in Scandinavia and in France which has been there for ages and I, I don't want to pull the old American thing of um, you know, people arriving in the new world and saying ah there's no people here yes. it's like yeah there is they're just different to you let's everyone have a nice time together so that, so I bring a lot of teachers across um, from, from the IO and from Annoyance and um, anyone who's passing through London who seems like an interesting person I uh, throw on a few workshops and, and take as much as I can from their brain yeah and and I suppose like like in many cities particularly in Europe you know cut to a time not so many years ago I would imagine the improv scene was very different and Mm. someone like you comes along and it has it it has exploded right but what I always find interesting and admirable about you is that you know with anything in life where you're usually good at something but not everything but you've got your hand in many pies in the improv room you're, you know, you've got the Maydays, you do musical improv, mm-hmm. you've got the duo with Heather. I, I mean, musical improv, I can, I can not embarrass myself. It's not like I'm any great musical improviser and it's intimidating as hell. I mean, the Maydays lineup includes some of the best musical improvisers in Europe. Um, and I think Joe, our pianist, is pretty much the best, uh, as good as anyone else in the world. So with the musical improv stuff, I really feel like I'm, I'm the kid that they let play. Mm. Um, but that's nice, and I have a lovely time doing it. So, how do you? Do, I mean, you also in proper Shakespeare, like you've got so many of these, and all of these have you know, are, you know, they've got you've got awards with the Maydays, and you, the recognition you get for all of these things, you know, speaks for itself. How do you juggle all of those things without saying, you know, what I should just focus on the Maydays, or I should just focus on, you know, do you know, how do you juggle that? I mean, firstly, I guess I should say that maybe I should. Just focus on one thing entirely. And, and there have been points where my focus has shifted to one thing in, in, in particular. At the start of this year, I was uh, Heather and I took 10,000 Men Love Stories uh, on the road, and we went on about a two-and-a-half-month tour across six countries, I think, something like that. 
Um, so it, it, it's more, it's not that I'm doing everything at the same time. It's that my focus shifts back and forth between things. Mm-hmm. So I did that tour and then I came back and then Edinburgh was kind of the focus of it. So that was very May Days orientated and also the May Days residential in September. And at the, kind of at the same time as that, although this was an accident, we took over this building. So there was that build. And then after, um, May Days, uh, improv retreat, uh, the focus switched onto Slapdash. And when this finishes, the focus was left on, shift onto the, uh, Rizowski intensive. So I guess, yeah, multitasking is a bit of a myth, I think, um, what I try to do is give all of the focus that I can to one thing, um, but just allow that thing to switch as and when it's necessary, which can be to the massive frustration of those people who want some of my time, effort, and energy yeah. for something else, because I'm not particularly good at switching between uh, brain states and, and projects. I'm, I'm much better at focusing on one thing and just getting that done. It's like crop rotation of improv. Right. Yeah. <laughs> crop rotation. I'm trying to drop in rotation. No, there's going to be a pun there somewhere. <laughs> so, t- t- what, what I remember is recently- agriculture. <laughs> there it is. I knew it was there somewhere. <laughs> um, I, I remember when we were chatting recently in Dublin, and something that you said kind of struck me that I was thinking about it afterwards when we, we were talking about improv books. Mm. I think, I think now I'm paraphrasing and I could be getting totally wrong. But I think you either said you, you haven't read an improv book or you've read two. I think I've read three, actually. I've, okay. I have said in the past that I've read two. I've read, I've, I've completed three. Um, I've tried reading other uh, improv books. I just find that um, it's very difficult to get um, practical and useful advice and information out of an improv book which can be applied. Because it's an applied thing, because it's something which, writing it down, you're always changing the medium in which that is interpreted and the way in which it comes into your brain. Um, I, I found with a couple of improv books that I, I read them and I thought, yes, I agree with all of this. This definitely seems like a really good way to improvise. And you go back into the rehearsal room, into a show, and it's not affected anything that yeah. you've done. Yeah. Um, and it, for me, and I know that some people get a huge amount of value out of it, so I don't want to universalize here in the slightest. And I also don't want to shoot myself in the foot when one day, I don't know, I might write a book, who knows. Um, uh, for me, I find improv books can give you a whole bunch of tools to make you hate your improv and not necessarily the tools to improve that. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, been my experience. I'm oh, sorry, I cut across your question. No, no, no. Um, I mean, it is that thing with improv. I find, like, the more you learn, the less you know. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, do you remember when it was fun in the early days because we knew no better, and then it was like, oh, God, there's a structure I have to remember. Oh, God, a Harold, what the hell is that? Um, and, you know, it, 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 that is a challenge, and it's absolutely right, I think, with... I've read quite a few books, but that's because mm. you know my journey through improv. I had limited access to resources, so you know I grabbed everything I could. Right, um, and I suspect that you're also a more bookish kind of guy than no, I am. Absolutely not. Really? Absolutely not. No. Oh, you get that impression? No, no, it's all a myth. I have a Kindle, loads of books on it, and I've read about three of them. Oh, okay. I was going to say uh, it, it's still a, it's still a book if it's on your Kindle. Well, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it looks impressive when you take it out on the train. I guess. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and it conceals. It conceals the truth of what it is that you're actually reading. Exactly. Like, exactly. It's the fourth Fifty Shades of Grey sequel, but that's fine. Totally. Like no one, totally. no one no, judges. No, no one judges. And so, speaking of backstory, so you've got an interesting backstory with improv. How did it all come? It's kind of like the the, the year one, Jules Mon's year one. And Jules Mon's year one. Um, yeah. So I, I went to drama school. Um, I, I did an English degree and uh, graduated an English degree and went. Oh, that gives you little to nothing. Um, I, it was an incredible experience, and I met some best friends for life and a degree is as much about teaching you how to think as it is about practical outputs but I 
I was uh, teaching English as a foreign language. I thought, hell, I auditioned for drama school. Went to drama school, did the Guildhall School in, in, in the city. Um, and we had, uh, in the second year, we had uh, uh, improv classes on Friday morning with a guy called Ken Ray, um, who taught the classic Johnstonian uh, failure philosophy of, like, um, that theatre sportsy thing of enjoying the, the second story of the person trying to make the story as much as the story on the top. Um, and I didn't hate those classes, but I was fucking terrified of those classes. Um, so I wouldn't be able to sleep the night before and I'd have to get drunk in order to be able to, not like in the morning, but like I'd have to be able to, I'd have to get drunk in order to, to, uh, to be able to get to sleep because I was so nervous about um, these classes. Um, I guess because I come from, you know, an English degree is a lot of sitting in libraries and, and, and writing essays and crafting um, what you think at the time are very original thoughts, but of course aren't. Um, and that just kind of interested me. And then there was a guy in the year below me um, who had been part of the Oxford Imps, who a very fine company, which was originally an improv company associated with Oxford University, but then kind of spun out and there's some town as well as some gown in it now. Um, and he started an improv company uh, or improv troupe, uh, which would rehearse on a Wednesday evening and a Sunday afternoon. And we didn't get taught, we didn't uh, have people come in and, and, and share their wisdom with us. We were just a bunch of people fucking around using the stuff which Ty remembered from, from Oxford. Um, so I went along to this, and initially, in, in the way that improv companies often are, there were sort of 20 people who were definitely going to change the world, and it boiled down to. I guess about six to eight people who would just turn up and keep going and keep going and keep going. And I kept going because I was fascinated as to this part of my personality which was not um, which was not quite functioning in a healthy way. Like, why am I so fucking scared about just being in a scene? It's no big deal. No one cares. It's just pretendy time. Um, and then as I graduated, um, I, I wasn't... You know, I was fine as an actor. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. I was fine. Like, I probably could have found my way through it because I'm a white, cisgendered, university-educated man with, a, with RP. It's very easy for people who look and sound like me in, in acting world. Um, but I realized, I guess, about six to nine months after um, graduating that I didn't, um, I didn't really want to do that. And the improv was the thing that was really exciting me. Um, so yeah, and that, that was the start of it. And then I joined some other companies. I did some stuff with and Prodigy and Remember Tron, and then I was part of Music Box during the May Days. And the May Days was kind of the point where um, everything, everything went much more on the fast track because the May Days has been around for ages and ages doing a very specific thing, which certainly at the time when I joined there was nearly no one else doing. Now we have um, Free Association and Monkey Toast and, and Hoopla are now teaching Harold's in Chicago style as well, and a bunch of other people who I'm sure I'll forget to mention. Um, uh, so yeah, that was that was my journey. I often say at the start of um, introduction to improv classes, I started improvising because I hate improvising, um, and, and and that's how I ended up doing it. And now it's just what I do with my life. I did some scripted theatre about three years ago, and it was fine. Mm. Like I think I was fine, and the show was fine, but I wanted to get back yeah. to my home. Yeah, mm. it's, a, it's it's such an addictive thing. Yeah, it really is. That is possibly one of the best Jules Mills quotes I've heard you say. It's so Jules Mills. If somebody put that up on the wall, I got into improvising because I hated improvising. Or hated improvising. <laughs> you know, that is something. That was Jules who said that. And Apparently, it, this is this is one of the things that's made me so like uh, the bad kind of proud, like ego proud. And um, I go to Edinburgh on a semi-regular basis. Like most years, I go to Edinburgh for a weekend and teach. 
And apparently in the, in the Edinburgh scene, hi Will, um, if you listen to this, Will Name, who's a wonderful man, he does, so he's, you know Will, he yeah. Is, yeah. he's the Neil Curran of Edinburgh, and apparently uh, adding an extra layer to an improv game to make it too complicated to be able to reasonably play is called adding the jewels level in Edinburgh. Let's jewels this. Let's add the jewels level. Right? That may be like, oh yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud of that. I'm happy with that. But that re- I think that's, that's, that's a compliment because it, it really shows... Because uh, I had this in the workshop the other day where there was a scene that a couple of the guys were playing at. I was like, if John Kramer was here, this would be a John Kramer scene. And that really shows you know, the personality that you're bringing to your work. Right. Um, which to me has always felt like such an important part of improv. You know, there's an infinite number of groups nearly out there. What sets them all aside? They can all be great improvisers, but what is it that they bring to the stage? And personality is a huge part of that. I, I think it's the whole fucking game. Mm. And I think it, it's about groups. I, I was having this conversation um, just an hour ago, um, having a, a chat with, um, with Trent Pansy from Finland, that in the end, an improv group is just the people. And the, the form has to be something which stimulates, excites, and inspires that set of people to be the way that they are the best that they can on stage. And I, I think that's true for improv groups. I think it's true for improv communities. And I can see, because um, I travel around the UK and also around Europe um, quite a bit teaching, I can see how the personality of the teacher, of the person who, is, who has founded that, um, that community, is expressed through the all of the improv that anyone does. I, I went to, I was in Dublin a month ago, mm-hmm. maybe, yeah. um, and uh, played in the jam on a Saturday night. It's just called the jam, right? Yeah, the, the love time. improv jam. The love improv jam, that's right. And super, super fun, delightful, like lovely, lovely people ranging from the rather serious to the batshit crazy. And a, 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 I love that variety. Um, but I could just see, oh, I can see Neil expressed in nearly all of these improvisers. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see Oh, there's a couple of people I was like, oh, this, this person plays in a different way. And then I would find out later after the 17th Guinness, because such is the way of Dublin, um, like, oh, that person trained in a different thing. Or that person trained with a different person. That makes sense. Yeah, they're not a Neil improviser. And I think that's a really, um, at the same time, it's a really positive thing because there's no such thing as a neutral improv team. Mm. It is also the danger that you end up creating a monoculture. Um, and this is absolutely not a criticism of you. I'm talking about improv things in general there's, there's the danger that you end up creating monoculture because it's incredibly difficult to remove your own taste yeah. from how you give notes totally. and, and teach classes totally. um, I, yeah I, I think in um, um, in, in Vilas Bowen's book and Alex Berg said the same thing when I was chatting to him a couple of days ago um, they both talking about give a, the, the teacher or the leader giving absolutely no response to any of the scenes mm. because as soon as a teacher laughs you hear the point when they are not laughing Right, and then you say, and then you start to kind of uh, play towards the high status of the person in the room, uh, and that's the thing. That I, not laughing or responding to scenes is something which I could, I would love to aspire to it, but I love watching improv too much. I always get into it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you know, it's a conversation with some recently we were talking about feedback and how. Mm. You know, with improv, where you, as a student, regardless of what level you're at, you're writing that line of comfort zone, yeah, very thinly. And all it can take is criticism, feedback given the wrong way, and that will totally derail that person, possibly right away. And um, but there is a point where you have to give people honest feedback for them to 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 mature and to to develop. And I think that's where a lot of teachers, you know, that's where they can fall down is not mm. knowing how to deliver that. We can't all be great. Mm. You know, we're not great all the time. Uh, recently, uh, I Brian James O'Connor from the Pack, Pack Theatre. We were doing an intensive with him, and at the end of the day, he said. Again, paraphrasing, but he said, uh, 
you guys did really well. You you got further through this than I thought you would, but don't pat yourself on the back too hard. <laughs> and that's the end of it. I thought it was such a really great way to kind of say, yeah, you did well, but you can do better. <laughs> that's really funny. I, one of my favourite bits of um, uh, Bill Arnett, who, you know Bill, don't you? Um, no. Oh, he's, I know who he is. I don't have him at all. Uh, former, I believe, artistic director of, um, uh, of the IO um, school, I'm getting the titles wrong, but like the education bit rather than the, uh, the performance bit. Um, and he was talking about directing shows and the difference between directing and teaching. And, and, and when you're directing, you're trying to accomplish a certain thing in a show. Sometimes you just have to tell people to stop. Mm. And, and the, I mean, Bill has this, um, he, he sort of speaks like, ah, 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 like, like, like this. And he said, ah, sometimes you just have to say, ah, look, you're, you're a child of love and light, but stop. You, you have to stop. You have to stop doing that. Um, and, and I think. The, the, we're getting into this kind of conversation about the, the difference between uh, a teacher, a coach, and a director, right? So uh, a teacher is... The way I teach, I really try to avoid saying anything about good and bad because honestly, no one gives a fuck. Yeah. Um, it's about what causes what. If I make this kind of play, um, whether it's an overt way of playing in the scene or whether it's an attitude with which I'm approaching the scene of my partner, if I do X, Y happens. If I do A, B happens. Um... And I find that to be a very rewarding uh, way of thinking about it because you're handing the control over to the person you're teaching and you're not saying um, you must do this in order to create good improv. You're saying, hey, if you, want, if you follow this thing, then this kind of improv will be the result. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why... And the, sort of the next logical stage of that is you, you need to have a, a clear and conscious ideology of the kind of improv that you're attempting to make. Um, and you, you always need to be teaching in relation to a certain thing, even if the thing is different in the afternoon to the thing that you're teaching in the evening. Um, whereas with a, with a director, you can say, all right, I want to make a show which feels like this, which has this effect on the audience. Um, so I'm going to say, that is a great improv move for a different fucking show. So please just take it out. And you, I find that if you, if you think of things in that way, you're removing the, personal good or bad success or failure assessment on it mm-hmm. you're just saying that is not the right fit for this picture which we're making and this is not the this move will result in this which we may or may not want mm-hmm. in these scenes or in these runs of scenes or in these games or, or organic freeform stuff that we're making um, so that that's the way that I approach feedback is I, I'm, I'm always trying to stop myself from displaying how much I enjoy watching people improvise and always trying to reframe it in those trying and failing to reframe it in those terms of of causality and stylistics because mm. yeah. yeah I guess how I do it yeah and that's that's a challenge that, that is interesting. it's interesting so because I I know that we know the Jules laugh the distinct Jules laugh <laughs> it's, it's it lasts a split second long but it's very and, and yeah, it's, it's this one. It, ha! Yes, it's that yeah. one. Yeah, um, and it's always at a time when no one else is fucking laughing. That's true. And, and I then sort of turned around and go, "Did no one else?" That was fucking hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a thing. I've, I don't think I've ever been to an improv show where someone, if I know people on stage, where someone hasn't come up to me after and said, "I knew you were in," because that, yeah, I just have a big loud boomy laugh. So looking at uh, the evolution of improv, um, because you're you're you know you're prolific here in London. You you see a lot of students, but you're also uh, you know you've also been to the US, go to the US a lot, and, and I, I, not a lot. I've only been to the US three times. 
Well, I bring a lot of US teachers over and train with them here. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how, how do you see the direction? And this is a kind of a fluffy question, but how mm. do you see how improv is evolving in London or the UK or Europe uh, compared with what has already, already been well-established in the US? Um, I haven't been in the US enough to talk about that to talk about the comparison confidently mm-hmm. um, I've, I've been in Chicago for 10 days a lot of the training which I've had has been through the Chicago style model I have particularly um, but I've only been there for 10 days in total and because it was the kind of the what's it called when you go to Mecca the Hajj it was like it was like going on the Hajj I had to go and see all the shows that I the legendary shows that I heard mm-hmm. like uh, Revolver and Deep Schwar and TJ and Dave all these kind of classic shows which were completely amazing um, but what I wasn't able to get into was what's the what's the periphery and the fringe and the experimental mm-hmm. stuff um, but for, for London um, we're at a critical mass now where there's hundreds of people engaging with improvisation every week um, and this brings with it two dangers. Um, we're very aware that we're a young scene. Um, and like I say, five or six years ago, there was nearly nothing here. It might be a little longer than that now. I feel like I've been saying five or six years for a couple of years, so it might be a little longer, but yeah. X years ago, there was very little here. Um, and now there's a huge number of people, and we have uh, the FA and the Miller and Microtoast and all these places doing weekly, regular shows. And you have Harold Knight, and you have um, house teams on this stuff. Um, there's a danger that we continue to always see ourselves in relation to a more mature scene like Chicago mm. uh, or New York or Toronto or Montreal um, uh, or Berlin or Paris for that matter they're just different styles mm. to, to, to what I uh, teach and perform um, and the danger is that all we're ever doing is trying to rehash what we saw read about or heard about from across the pond and we're always the little brother um, desperately trying and failing to be Chicago, and it is absolutely true that if if there were a single pathway, we could say, well, we're thirty years behind Chicago, twenty years behind Chicago, or whatever. Um, I'm just going to say that I will use the word Chicago to refer to a big improv city, not because it's the only one, but because it's the one that I ideologically yeah. connect with. Um, and uh, now, not my friend thought, it is really important to me that we continue to take all that information chew it around, see what works for us, see what doesn't work for us, but we also keep doing our own R&D. We're not always being derivative. We're not always just repeating the stuff which we've got from elsewhere. And I, I think there's a lot of teachers which, um, uh, who are really doing this, and I think that, that to me, is precious because that's what will eventually... Oh, not eventually, what is already creating a kind of London style. Um, so I think that's one really important thing. The other really important thing is that... W- um, when I started doing improv, within a year, I knew pretty much everyone who did improv, mm. um, which was lovely and delightful. And then over the last few years, now I go to the Miller and there's a bunch of people wearing improv T-shirts and doing really good improv, and I, I've never fucking seen it before in my life. Mm. This is cool, but also I'm scared now. <laughs> um, and the, the danger of uh, there being enough people is that you start to split into camps. And naturally, yes. you have your preference, you have your, you have your taste, and you have your people that you love to play with because they play in the same style as you or have the same fun, something funny. Um, but the danger of that is you start to get, um, uh, it's called siloing, I think, in, in, yeah. in, in organizational um, uh, development terms, that people aren't talking to each other. Mm. Um, and I don't, 
It's it's a difficult thing because, of course, it, it is a very productive thing to choose one style and get really good at that. Mm. And it is very challenging to do that and at the same time not end up thinking another style is less or wrong or different. Yeah. Um, and with, and the, the schools, the uh, Monk Test Free Association, Hoopla Nursery, the, the kind of the schools that are doing stuff um, have distinct styles. I um, I think it's really really important that we continue to um, cross firstly to respect each other, which is absolutely a thing which is happening. There's a lot of love and everyone goes and plays in each other's thing, um, in each other's um, venues. Um, but we, we keep respecting and cross pollinating between the schools at the same time as driving students to get really, really good at the thing that we're teaching. And that's an incredibly challenging... It's almost a paradox, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so th- those are the two things that I see, which is fairly abstract and kind of like top-level um, analysis. I don't know if you say, well, I think Harold will be getting more organic, which you know, is what I love doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's important that we don't end up dividing ourselves between us and the village the other side of the hill... Um, who kill babies and, blink and drink blood, and we're right. And that's an, it's a human impulse. Like our brains are programmed to divide the world into in-group and out-group. That's what they call yeah. it in psychology, like them and us. Um, and there's amazing uh, experiments where they, um, with things like uh, like mirror neuron pain experiments, great. Um, where they take someone and they say, "Oh, this person went to the same university as you," and then they watch that person um, having electric shock because it's fake pain, and you see how much pain is registered in the brain of the person watching this. And if you say, "Oh, this person went to a different university as you," you experience uh, less mirror pain, less sympathetic pain with that person. Um, and there's a bunch of experiments like this which are really fascinating, um, underlining the point that it is a natural and probably at the point where most of the brain evolved useful thing is separate the world into people we can trust and people we can't. Unfortunately it's not great for an art form where the whole thing is about cooperation. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think this is something which is happening in London. I'm absolutely not saying hey those guys don't think my stuff is good. Uh, but I think that's just the danger of the critical mass of improvisers that we have now. Yeah I, I yeah. hear that because I, 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 I travel uh, quite a lot and right. it, it's interesting to see how Community is, is very important in improv. You know, it's an unusual art form in that most of your audience is improvisers. Yeah. You know, um, but of course, a, a, a symptom of community when it grows is siloing and geeks and things like that, which then become the opposite of community and off-putting. Right. Um, but it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, and like you say, you have you we yes and on stage. We have to yes and off the stage. Right. We're hypocrites. Uh, but you do see cities where these splinters form mm. and. And it doesn't serve improv. You know, it's like, you know, not to pick on stand up, but so we use that as an example. There's an open mic night. Fuck it, let's fucking pick on stand up. Stand up turns out, does a set and goes home and doesn't even know who's on right. the bill with him or her. And, and or just like leans against the bar, nursing one beer and just like texting the entire way through everyone else's fucking set. Like, stand up. fuck you, man. I did stand up for the first time recently, Jessamine Fairfields. Oh, right, yeah. Hi, Jessamine. Bright Club. And she said she'd do it, and I was like, "Oh God!" And I couldn't write anything for it, so I said, "Right, I put ideas down and I'll improvise it." But there was somebody standing in the room. I went to the person because they're very funny, and it was that thing of who's that person on their own leaning against the wall texting, and and it was that you know it is that thing all over. But you know, with improv, it's it's I you, I enjoy watching people. I enjoy seeing different. I enjoy watching people who are better than me. I enjoy watching people who do different things than me because you go and learn from that, and and. I, it, it, I think it's sad when you see not that I'm not saying it's happened in London but when you see cities or, or communities that are so splintered like that 
it's only going to get better when people talk, shake hands, right. and do something. Somebody said it to me recently. They were, uh, in their city again we won't, we won't mention names uh, they, they I really want you to mention names probably <laughs> oh, because I'll get it wrong and say there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong in Dublin um, but it, they, they were saying there was a group in their town and there's not many people that uh, not, there's not much in the town and they don't really speak and, and my advice was we'll invite them to play with you right you know disarm them through, through kindness and uh, and it, it, the reaction was like oh I never thought of that you know um, but yeah it's a, it, it, you know that is when. What is the solution for you know the siloing or the clicks? You know, is there a solution or is it just gets bigger? And I, I mean, it's hard to keep giving. It's hard to keep giving out love and generosity when you're not giving it back. And again, I'm not talking about London yeah, improv scene. Yeah. We haven't got to a point where, but we're not at all in a point at a point where there is a problem. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm being speculative and saying. This is what I can see happening in five, ten years' time, and um, maybe it's not going to be a problem. Annoyance and IO exist um, side by side, and there's a lot of, let alone the respect. There's a lot of performers who go back and forth between um, the schools, and, and Susan Messing is a wonderful example of that. Um, uh, she's so adept at playing in the style of the show or the place that yeah. needs to happen. Um, and I think that that can only be good for your improv as well, hmm. um, because, like I said, there's no such thing as a as a neutral improv scene. You're, you're all, there's always a I visualize like a, a set of dials on your chest, and there's always different combinations of settings hmm. for the show that you're doing, and it might change during the show, or you might go on with everything at zero, and then go, oh, we're going this way, and quickly yeah. change your dials to, to, yeah. to follow what's going on. Um, but I, I mean, I have no idea what what the solution is. Because I suspect it's a, I suspect it's in response to the specifics of what is going on. Yeah. And like I said, it's I'm just speculating mm. about about where it go. Um, I think the two things I was going to say about the um, the person who's not engaging with the thing which is going on stage. Um, well, yeah, about four things now that kind of spark off my head. One is that I totally understand those people who might be on later. And uh, adrenaline is a weird thing, which does... Adrenaline makes your brain shit at listening and shit at taking in information um, because it's pushing you towards reacting rather than contemplating, which is the right thing, because if you see a tiger, fucking run, hit it, do something. Don't think about it. Um, So adrenaline does funny things, and I can understand that some people's response to adrenaline um, is to close down or chat in the back or text because it makes them feel safe. Um... And it is it is good that that generally doesn't happen in improv. Um, but, but part of it is always the, the way that I kind of reframe it. If I um, have problems with people who are, who are like that, who kind of shut off before their show, um, is that the giving attention to the person on stage is not just for the benefit of the of the audience of the person listening. By by the force of your attention and by the the way in which you listen, you ignite the imagination of the people on stage, right? You you, you put the same improv troupe in front of, uh, um, and what's what's your kind of worst case scenario? In front of a, a drunken stag do who don't want you to be there because they thought they were getting stand up, and we've all played those gigs, um, versus uh, the made us bright an audience, which is um, slightly older than a stand up audience, generally quite improv savvy, generally quite. Um, uh, I mean, they're budget fucking Guardian readers, basically. God love them. Um, they're not Guardian readers as well. Um, 
and you just do a better show because people are giving you the force of their attention um, and I think that's a really important thing with a jam with a show which has a whole bunch of uh, teams in it over the course of the night that you, you need to keep the room focused you need to keep all of those little spotlights in people's heads pointing at the stage because that's what makes the stage bright enough for you to play on um, so that, that, that's a kind of reframe that I use for, for people who, who don't want to play stereotypes and it's like it's not fucking for you it's for those people on stage like, give it for them because um, they need it um, and also anyone who gets up on stage and tries to make something up without a script without knowing what's going to happen deserves your fucking respect because it's hard yeah, it's hard it's really fucking hard it's lovely but it is fucking difficult yeah, um, yeah. so R- rant over <laughs> oh, this, that's never true my rants are never over <laughs> so that, maybe let's steer in a different direction and uh, let's get some practical advice from you oh so, Jesus um, well, don't worry don't panic uh, <laughs> Give me, give me a common that you're, you're teaching regularly. So, give me a common, mm. uh, let's say, a common symptom you're seeing in teaching, and perhaps an exercise or some tips that you would give to people who may be listening and going, "Yeah, I suffer from that sometimes," and maybe something they can take away. Um, a common, a, a common thing that people do in scenes, which is not helpful to them, or yeah, or maybe a habit that you enjoy coaching or, or, or teaching people out of. Uh, well, I think I'm very interested in the. Moment. I'm, I'm co- coaching a two prof course at the moment, which is very. It's the first time I've done that, um, and it's very interesting because I've done a, a fair bit of two prof or duos, as Americans call them. Um, and one of the things which I've seen a little bit in that situation. Um, is overfilling the stage, or we've, which we've talked about, not that I've seen, is overfilling the stage with facts. You know, you've been in those scenes where someone comes out, and this is a classic example that I always use. Ah, oh, Professor, it's the day of your retirement, Daniel, you're 75, and you've done wonderful work. I'm so proud of your second Nobel Prize. And we've been in love for 35 years, even though... And you sort of think, there's so much stuff on stage there, um, which... It feels to me like the whole stage has been filled with foam and there's no space anywhere for you to play, right? It's, it's a very proficient way to create the who, what, where, to create the physical circumstances or physical or psychological circumstances of the scene. Um, but what you haven't done is go, hey, there's another fucking human on stage with me. Um, and I think that that is... I totally understand uh, the impulse to it, which is to go, I want to pull my weight um, Vic Hogg, who's a lovely improviser in, in the UK and one of the people who runs Duck Duck Goose, which is jam night on a Monday, which is great, great, great fun. Um, uh, when we were doing a run of scenes, she, she talked about trying to get something through the door before the scene ends, because I was doing a run of 30-second scenes, but I'm cutting them off. And I think that it, it, it feels like you're helping and contributing and pulling your weight, and actually what you're doing is like, pelting balls at your partner and making them respond to those things rather than allowing people to um, uh, to humanly connect and play in that way this is of course heavily biased through my preference for relationship based ideas of course Um, so that's 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 a thing which you see quite a lot, particularly in jam situations where people are scared, they don't, they're nervous, they know who the other person is. Oh, quick, if I, call, if I call you my dad and I say that it's 3 o'clock in the morning, I've come home late, then at least we know something, at least we have some form of shared platform, mm. is the kind of Johnsonian language. And I get that. Um, and 
uh, I, I just get people to sit as we're sitting now, about a yard and a half um, away from each other, and I get them to put, uh, hands back to the hands on the knees, feet flat on the floor, and give them like do a little um, uh, like meditation cycle while they have their eyes closed, just to get them to relax, concentrate on the breath, notice what's happening, and then get them to play, open their eyes, and just play scenes just off that. Um, and that tends to bring that kind of communication connection. It also leads people towards an understanding of how many facts you have in a scene, yeah. uh, a question to which there is no answer because it entirely depends on what's going on. Um, one of my favorite scenes I've played this year was with Chris Mead. Um, we did a freeform organic thing at the, at the Edric in May, June, something like that. And we ended up with this, somehow we ended up face down on the floor like starfish. And we were slapping our hands against the floor and blowing raspberries. Just like back and forth, and there was kind of rhythm pattern thing. And there were no facts. And it was a scene where we'd, we'd already played uh, gods and planets and molecules and amoebas. And like that was the language and the, the vocabulary of the, uh, of the show. And it was super, super fun. And there were absolutely no facts required. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also those scenes which, because of the way that they set up, need a whole load of facts, and that's fine as well. But I, I find that if you connect with your partner properly, um, you will know how many facts you need without overforcing it, or or not putting any facts in because um, oh, we're doing TG and Dave style slow comedy can have to be a great excuse for we're standing on stage doing fucking nothing, <laughs> um, uh, which is dull as shit. Um, did the, it, did that answer your question? Definitely answered your question. I hope someone's taking notes. <laughs> uh, one last question for you, Jules. Um, sure. This is not much your favourite improv troupe. It's more, is there something that you've seen in the last while that's fresh in your head that you made you go, oh, I really enjoyed that? Um, I saw, um, a couple of days ago at Slapdash, the first night of Slapdash, I saw um, uh, Will Lawera, um, Kevin Scott and John Agapew play uh, an organic three-person thing. Were you there? Did you phone I was there, yeah, I was there. Um, and uh, Will is someone that I've, I've been supposed to meet, I think, on four occasions, and he's been prevented from coming to the Improfestivals by work or the um, the Iceland air strike a couple of years ago or something. So, like, I'd known about him for a long time, finally met him. Uh, and Kevin I'd met a couple of times and never seen before, and John I know very well. Um, and it was just lovely to see three people with the same... No, not quite the same, but playing in a similar style, using that 15-20 minute set to find what the set was. Like it was Taro De Francisco, De Francesco, sorry for the pronunciation, um, describes the Harold as a set of rules which are created for the show that night and then never used again, <laughs> uh, which I think is really lovely, like a really deep note as well. And I, and I loved watching these three guys find their way to finding a show together. Um, in a way which was super funny and, as an improv nerd, super fascinating to watch. And also there's there's not a huge amount of organic stuff in London, and it's something that's probably something I want to explore and uh, and do in the next year or so. So it's lovely to watch people go and go, oh, yeah, that's fucking great. Because Big Bang, who were on last night, are just wonderful and amazing. Um, and uh, the, the, the German team, AMS, um, on the first night also did uh, some... Uh, lovely uh, organic stuff. I'm familiar with their stuff. So this was like, I love scratch teams thrown together duos where people. Mm. It's it's the 
every bit of the improv is improvised. Mm. And that's, yeah, I find that really refreshing. And the sad thing for people listening is they'll never see that show again because that was something that happened in the moment. Right. Exactly. Although uh, Will, Kevin and John, uh, well as now in Sarasota, but he set up Big Bang, which still exists in improv Boston. Um, Kevin is the pit in New York. And John plays with a few teams here, including the rebranding, and uh, coaches a bit as well. Um, and they're all fucking great improvisers, so if you have the opportunity. There you go. Mm-hmm. Jules Mills, thank you very much. Thank you, Neil.